Good evening everyone. Welcome to Evening Dhamma. Tonight we're looking at the... Well, tonight we start into Dhamma Nupasana. Dhammi Sudhamma Nupasi Viharati. One dwells contemplating the Dhamma, Dhammas, plural, in the Dhammas. And this word has been translated in this context. Of course, the word itself is translated many different ways, but in this context there are different translations. The most common one that I've always seen is mind objects, which isn't at all what it means. I'm... I'm confused as to why that was chosen mind objects as a translation for Dhamma is a very specific translation that is completely out of place in this context from my point of view it's a hard one to justify uh, the commentary uh, doesn't do much to elucidate it it says well now we've talked about citta, so it's time to talk about dhamma. So what is dhamma? Well, it relates back to the five aggregates, the commentary says. Um, we have we have gaye, gaya nupasi, viharati, mindfulness of the body. And that's the first, that corresponds again with the first aggregate. Vedana corresponds with the second aggregate, vedana. Uh, mind corresponds with jitna, with vijnana, consciousness, the fifth aggregate. So it says dhamma corresponds with uh, sanya and sankara. Or, in order to elucidate these other ones, the Buddha taught dhamma nupasana. Now, clearly, this isn't all that's included in in dhamma nupasana. Or that's not exactly. It shouldn't be taken, I don't disagree with it exactly, but it shouldn't be taken to mean that Dhamma is only dealing with these second two. What it, and that's not what it says. It says in order to include these other ones. So the idea with Dhamma is there's something new that wasn't in the first three. Uh, even though there's going to be a lot of overlap, um, framing it in terms of Dhamma is useful because this is the teaching this is the path and the practice so the fourth one is again like the things that we're going to uh, that are going to be involved with our practice along the path as we practice what we're going to encounter what we're going to have to deal with what we're going to have to cultivate it's uh, in many ways it should be translated as or in some ways it can be translated as the teachings of the Buddha I don't think that's quite the best translation but it's important to understand that this is this one is going to be very interesting for us the first three were like objects of meditation the fourth one is more like a a, a manual for as we progress there's more to it but I think probably the best translation of Dhamma is, is the, the, main the main translation of the word, which is reality, something that 
um, holds its own reality so dharma is an interesting word dhamma is dhar which means to hold so it was used most commonly before the buddha came along to talk about uh, that which someone holds on to a code or a um, you know, creed and so the various cases cast the various well they tried to set up society so the various levels of society had their own uh, way there was an order and so the the nobles had their code and it meant they could kill but there were certain ways that they could kill each other then if they killed according to the dhamma the dharma then it was okay anyway this was it so it, that's where it evolved from and then it evolved into well whatever te this teacher teaches well that's his dharma and so then the buddha had his dharma and people started talking well what's his dharma and the buddha's answer was my dharma is reality my dharma is things that uh, not that i hold but things that hold their own existence So, uh, and, and that's what reality means, of course. It's not it's something that doesn't rely upon me to exist. Right? All the thoughts and the concepts that I have in my mind, they rely on me to exist. Without me, they don't exist. And, and meaning they exist dependent on how I think about them. If I think about a person as being wonderful, well, suddenly they're wonderful. I can tell you all about this wonderful person I know and how I, they do everything that just is so pleasing to me but the reality that's not reality the reality is sometimes I meet this person and I get very angry I go to see them and I think oh here's my good friend who I love and then they do or say something that really makes me upset and uh, the difference between reality and conception people don't exist and this is the reason why it's a problem to think that they do because we get conceptions about this person when a person is always changing the reality is just a whole bunch of complex experiences that change in many different ways and clash with our experiences in many different ways so that's dharmas dharmas are real what's really happening what really exists now, but this this uh, specifically is not all dharmas. It's the dharmas that are important for us. So it does have a sense of being the teachings. You know, this is a very practical, this isn't supposed to be theoretical again. The four foundations of mindfulness aren't the best way of describing reality. The five aggregates are much better, and we'll talk about them. But the four foundations of mindfulness are a way of fitting the five aggregates into something more practical and this fourth one is exceptionally practical so that's a little bit that hopefully helps and doesn't confuse more about what dharma is because it's a tough one I'll just keep it simple again theory isn't the most important it's important that we understand this part and as the dharma of the buddha okay so it starts by focusing on the hindrances which is a good place to start of course the buddha wouldn't just pick something at random uh, the, so the hindrances are really the first thing a meditator has to deal with and 
in many ways they're the litmus test of whether our practice is succeeding you know, do you still have the five hindrances are they still consuming your mind they're really all you need to contend with uh, so when we talk about progress it's a bit of a mistake to think about gaining something there is some gain but it's it's much more difficult to grasp what we've gained than it is to grasp what we've let go of have the five hindrances reduced is really the best question you can ask yourself because it's practical and practically speaking you can you can work on this so if you come and you doubt the practice and you say look I'm not sure if this is doing anything I can very clearly ask you if you have the five hindrances if you don't have any of the five hindrances then you're at the very top already either you're enlightened or you're uh, fully accomplished in insight meditation or else you're just you're just deluded and think they're not there and you're not really being mindful that happens too but this is what we have to focus on in our practice uh, as as the these are the beasts that we're trying to hunt I suppose or one one kind of beast these are the, the enemies This is the war that we're trying to fight We're not waging a war against our thoughts We're not waging a war against our bodies We're waging a war against Against the hindrances really So the five hindrances That's why they're called hindrances These are the things that will prevent you from seeing clearly these are what prevent insight meta insight from arising so they prevent you. you you talk about the goal and, and something good and some understanding people complain about not getting progress but most often these are the people who well th these people have still difficulty with the hindrances so often a lot of doubt and doubt is well, we'll talk about them, but doubt is is um, doubt can be useful. I mean, it's not wrong to doubt things that are worth doubting, but we often have doubt as a default. You know, we're we're averse to believing anything, we're averse to accepting anything, to the point, if, even sometimes, that it blinds us to what is actually happening. We see the truth, and we still continue to doubt anyway we'll talk about these in order the first one uh, sensual desire so this is a big one right this one we see right away you want to sit in meditation but instead your mind is like it's like a baby cow the, the Visuddhimaga talks about this baby cow an ox maybe that you uh, you want to train it because actually oxen are quite smart and they can be trained. Uh, so you you take it away from its mother and you pound a stake into the ground and you tie a rope to the stake and you tie another rope maybe to the ring in its nose or I don't know how that works. And this cow runs around and runs around and runs around, but. Because the rope is there and the stake is firmly planted, uh, it can't. It, it just gets tired. 
once it gets tired, it, it rests. It goes and, and, and sits down, and then it's ready to train. And so this, this going out to the mother, thinking only about the mother's milk, this is sensual desire. You'll be practicing, and your mind is just like a baby, thinking about things that, you know, it has no reason to be thinking about. Wanting things that just ridiculous. The meditators will get so obsessed with simple things like cheeseburgers or cheesecake or chocolate, or they start naming these. And I remember one meditator who was just craving bread because in Asia there's a lot of rice, and it was just if what what she would give for some nice German bread. Well, this is what we're this is what we're seeing. It's like withdrawal in many ways, right? This is like detox. You're in the you're in this uh, hospital, and you're going through withdrawal, which is great, really. It's a chance to sober up, and this sobriety is so so powerful, so much more than than sobering up from drugs. Although in many ways it is drugs, right? What we're talking about is mind drug, brain drugs, dopamine. What are the uh, serotonin? I don't know what they, what are the the important drugs in the brain, and they're we're steeped in them, and we know exactly how to get them. I see this, bing, and my brain drugs give me the the shot, the hit. I get the hit of brain drugs. And so it's really just a drug addiction, which, which, when you think about it, really is it's a good thing to be free from. It doesn't seem like it to the drug addict, but it's really relieving, you know. Many meditators, they'll leave even if they've just been here a short time, they'll leave and feel cleaner, like they've they've cleansed something about themselves, because really that's the brain becoming unpickled. The second hindrance is Vyapada. Vyapada is, or Vyapada is uh, ill will. Uh, usually has to do with people, but I think in this instance we can take it to mean any kind of aversion in the practice. Aversion to sights and sounds and smells and tastes and feelings and thoughts. So these two are the, the, these are the big ones. These are the ones that uh, are going to hound you, liking and disliking. They're not everything, they're f all five are important, but, well, liking and disliking, they're the, they're the pair, right? Liking for things you, things that are good, disliking for things that are bad, these are the tools we're such wretched creatures that these are the tools that we have to interact with the world. For the most part, these are the only tools we have. Good? Okay. Like it? Bad? Okay. Dislike it. And that's all we know. And it's very easy then for the other hindrances and defilements to breed, to become views and egos and conceit and fear and worry and anxiety depression, all of these mental illnesses, many mental illnesses come 
because we just don't have the right tools we think somehow getting angry about things is useful and it makes sense in the in, from the outset because that's the impetus to run away from it if you uh, anger and, and aversion it's a good way to escape things even if it just means yelling at someone so they be quiet right scaring them away, chasing them away go away, I don't want to see you again it's a good way to get rid of them, right? but the problem with it and the problem with, with all of these is they become habitual and so what this um, section says is it, it again, it's, this is an important the hindrance is a really important section besides the obvious reasons but it's important because it shows, along with Jitanupasana actually, I didn't mention it, but it shows that we're not trying to avoid these things. We're trying to understand them. And that's necessary because they're habitual. You can say, okay, I'm going to practice and not get angry and not want anything, not have any of the hindrances arise. And either you force yourself, which you know has problems of its own, or you fail. You can't because they're habits. They're, they have a power to them. They have a power of the repetition, power of the uh, inclination. They have changed you with their power. So it's something that takes work. You have to keep up at it and be patient with it and not try to judge them. Just try to learn and to change. You know, to to change the direction. And so with ill will, the same. We we're not trying to feel bad about getting angry or avoid getting angry, but when you are angry, be aware of it, how it arises, how it ceases what it causes, what it's caused by knowing when it's present, knowing when it's not present what makes it present, what makes it not present understanding it, the five hindrances know your enemy, right? if you know your enemy well it has no power over you the third hindrance is tinamidha which um, Tina and Midha they're, they're a mental the sloth and torpor they're often translated as but they're mental uh, fatigue it's important to distinguish between physical fatigue because you can be tired physically and your mind is clear you're, you're still falling asleep right but um, sloth and torpor is more like a laziness in the mind Laziness might be the best way of translating this. This sort of, oh, I don't want to, I don't know, I don't care. This kind of uh, drowsiness, I suppose, as well. But the sort of um, the mental torpor. So when you feel. Uh, no, it's also drowsiness, but it's mental, right? So the physical, your body can be can uh, your body can be 
I don't know, can your body be tired? That's a good question, I might be wrong there It doesn't really matter When you're tired, you just say tired, tired The question of whether it's always a hindrance I'm not convinced that it is Because arahants sleep, right? Arahants sleep, the Buddha did I'm not sure if the Buddha slept or not But uh, so if, there, if, a, if an enlightened being sleeps, then does an enlightened being get tired? No, I think the difference is there's no feeling of tired. The difference is it's just now I'm going to sleep and then there's sleep. It's a difference. When the, when you feel tired, right, this is uh, tinamida. And it's a hindrance because it, it prevents the clarity of mind So you have to say to yourself, tired, tired The body doesn't feel tired, right? It's like the body doesn't feel pain That's only mental It's like a rock can't feel tired or feel pain Why? Because it's the mind that feels it So the actual feeling tired, that's the, that's the hindrance entirely And so it's, you get rid of it I mean, it's true When you... Through the practice of meditation, you get to the point where uh, there, there is no fatigue. You break through it. The body can't feel tired. It's not the body that's feeling tired. Well, it's a good question whether the uh, like there's certain medication that makes you drowsy So how does that work? I think it preys on your, your own On this hindrance And uh, if you didn't have the hindrance It might just put you to sleep No drowsiness, just sleep It's interesting It's an interesting question These are interesting questions when Buddhism comes up because we have a lot of knowledge in the West about how the brain works and so on I don't have all the answers I think it's it's not so important again because it with any with all these things we're not here to judge them is this a hindrance or is it not we're here to see them to understand them and so either way you just say to yourself tired tired the fourth one is udacca and kukucha, which are actually two different things. Udacca is uh, restlessness, and kukucha is worry. Kukucha means worry. It's often associated with feeling guilty about things. Uh, udacca is just udacca is just uh, where the mind is not focused. The mind is not. Uh, The mind is not still Jumping here, jumping there But they're related, right? They're both delusion-based And they, they, they both have the effect of Keeping the mind from being still There's restlessness Where the mind is jumping Thinking about this, thinking about that Distraction, you can also call it And then there's worry Where the mind is uh, Agitated by something Anxious about something 
And yet, but it is important with all of these to differentiate from the body and the mind. Um, it, of course, the body and mind are related, but the important it's important because otherwise, the physical will instigate the mental, right? As I've talked about many times, if you feel the physical manifestations of, say, anxiety, it's quite common for that moment of experiencing that to make you more anxious. You feel the tense stomach and the heart beating, and that makes you anxious. And it doesn't have to, is the point. If you can change the way you look at it, uh, clearly any meditator can can experience this when you're anxious and you say anxious and then when you feel the feeling and instead of anxious you say feeling feeling and just remind yourself these feelings of tension or tense tense are just feelings then they don't make you anxious they don't stop but they slowly go away on their own because you're not feeding them with more anxiety instead of it spiraling out of control where you're paralyzed through the panic attack so separating out the physical and the mental is important. Worry and distract and restlessness or distraction, these are mental. Remember one uh, one monk told me that arahants don't yawn, now that I think about it. This is an interesting one because he said arahants don't yawn. So I guess he's of this school and I guess the orthodoxy is probably that Arahants don't get tired either. I don't know. I'm not entirely convinced. But it's a tough one. And the fifth one is Vichikicha, which means doubt, uncertainty. Doubt is really the worst. If you have doubt, you can have doubt about, again, things that are worth doubting, but it's still a problem. If you're doing something and it's the wrong thing to do, you'll doubt about it, naturally. But that's bad. It's bad because it's a sign that the, thi the thing you're doing is bad. It's, a, it's bad because no matter what you're doing, if you doubt it, uh, you won't meet with success. So uh, it can be useful uh, because the thing you're doing might not be worth doing and doing it might not lead you to good things. Um, but but thereby the doubt is a sign The point being um, I mean I guess you could also say that faith Faith in things that are bad is also very dangerous But uh, I, I would argue that it's impossible to have true faith in things that are bad People talk about having faith in, in this or that But they're actually just forcing themselves and suppressing the doubt which is certainly possible when I mean, there are many ways to suppress doubt but in mindfulness practice all of these things we allow them to come up we challenge ourselves to experience the things that give rise to the hindrances without actually giving rise to the hindrances right? to experience them without the reaction And doubt, I mean, there's so little to doubt in Vipassana. I mean, someone who doubts mindfulness practice clearly has a doubt problem, which is common. I mean, many people do have a doubt problem. But that's an important point to make, that what can you doubt, you know? 
if I were telling you there's a flying spaghetti monster up in the in the sp in space who's who's uh, fulfilling your every wish, that's worth doubting. But I'm telling, but we're telling. You know, the Buddha said, when you see, know that you're seeing. It's very hard to doubt that. But as with all the hindrances, this is like us, uh, like blotter paper. Right, this paper that that I don't know if that's the right word, but those litmus paper I think is the word. Uh, this allows you when you practice in this way, it shows you everything. It's like the hunter waiting for his prey or her prey. You don't have to run around. When you practice this, all these things are going to come up. It's like bait. We're baiting them. And so definitely doubt will come up during the practice. It's important for us to be clear is that there's nothing to doubt. Be clear that the doubt is the problem. Doubt is often the problem. And try and be clear that it's not it shouldn't be a question of is this good or is this bad? Because what we're here to do is is give up doubt. What we're here to do is not give up doubt about any one thing, but just that. To stop doubting anything. And and in many ways that means to stop believing anything. Right? Because if we say give up doubt, well, does that mean I just have to believe things uh, unconditionally? No. In many ways it means stop believing anything at all. Stop with belief. Buddhism isn't about belief, it's about overcoming doubt, really plain and simple. So it has to do with reality, which of course is a loaded word, but shouldn't be. Because these realities are simple. Seeing exists, hearing exists, you can't deny that reality. And so when you're clear that seeing exists, that's about as far as you have to go. If only we could just be clear that seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling and thinking exist. Remember I had one student who was a Hindu background, and boy, she had crazy ideas. I'm still, I still have doubt as to whether she was entirely um, there. I don't know what the right word is, but I think something was crazy in her my brain because she <laughs> came to me with all these crazy stories things happening to her that I'm really not sure that any of them actually happened but you know like her clothes were were stuck to the ceiling or stuff really bizarre things that just out of left field for the most part uh, but I kept saying to her you know there's only six senses that's seeing or it's hearing or it's smelling it's so any crazy thing she came to me with, I just kept telling her. It still doesn't escape seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. And it was very much able to, to um, counter any any challenge. You know, hey, what about this? This is something extraordinary. No, it's just still seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. If you understand that, there's nothing to doubt. That's it. All of the rest of the Buddha's teaching, oh, it can be such a uh, catalyst for doubt because it's complicated and 
this, you know, books tend to be very complicated. They're trying to explain something and they're useful for that. But if you focus on them, if you the problem is not the books. Books are useful, they're helpful. The problem is how you use them. Do you then focus on the book and say, This book says uses this word. Says this, right? We have to use books. We don't have the Buddha around. But we have to use them to to practice and use them as useful things, not as Bibles. Anyway, so those are the five hindrances. If you can free yourself from them, not by suppressing them, but by and that's the easy way, right? Just to suppress them, which is you know, valid. It's a valid meditation practice, but it's not the end. And that's not this practice. This practice is not suppressing. This practice is understanding how they arise, how they cease. The Buddha says very clearly in this section, which makes it very important. We're not trying to give to, to avoid or suppress them. We're trying to fully understand the truth of them and free ourselves from them completely by seeing that, hey, look, these are not useful, these are not helpful, these are bad habits that I've developed. So there you go, there's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. I'll go and see if there are questions. Yesterday I was, uh, I went to Toronto, Mississauga, we had this yearly, turns out there's a yearly meditation in the park. Oh, we have lots of questions. I'm planning on ordering the entire Pali Canon. I heard you say that one should read the first book. Hmm. Proceed. Oh, I think you're mis you're mis you're confusing things. The books I told said to read are my books, the ones that I wrote. Uh, read the first book I wrote, then do a meditation course, then read the second book that I wrote. Um which actually isn't entirely finished yet may never be finished uh, but the Tipitaka is, is many many books and reading them all is a, a, a huge undertaking I don't understand what a meditation course can provide if one has read your booklet and applies it is it the structure that is the value the accountability of someone being there when you think you want to leave oh or maybe you aren't confusing them I'm, I'm not sure what that has to do with the Pali Canon but um, I don't understand what a meditation course can provide. Well, it's intensive. It's there's so much. So meditation course, you you just have to try it, I mean, or maybe not. Uh, meditation course is, is yes is structured, but is intensive. Really intensive is the most important, and the structure allows you to be to the intensivity, and it allows you to stay on track. Yeah, so the accountability. But also the teacher, someone who can keep you on track, who can push you back on track when you get off track. How did samsara started in the first place? Well, we don't have an answer for that. There isn't an there isn't understood to be a beginning. Time doesn't work that way apparently. 
What is the true nature of fear? Fear is based on anger. It's a aversion, not anger, but it's an aversion mind state. So there's a disliking involved. I had an argument, I've talked about this before, but I had an argument with an Abhidhamma person once. And he said, no, fear is just delusion. And I said, what? Fear must be based on, on aversion. And he said, no, no. So I, I tenaciously stuck to my guns and, you know, I was just bantering it back and forth. And he said, okay. He went, he came back a day, a day later and he said, I talked to a, an Abhidhamma expert and he agrees it's just delusion. He said, he verified, it's just delusion. Still wasn't convinced, it didn't convince me. And so I went to, uh, well, I didn't go, I, I actually... Or maybe I did. At some point, I I hit upon something. I went to the Visuddhimagga, and uh, you know, not that we have to believe what anyone says, but these people are very much invested in the orthodoxy. So uh, I went to the Abhidhamma and looked at the Abhidhamma, and it talks about Bhayanyana. It says in Bhayanyana, one isn't afraid. I said the commentary of the Visuddhimagga I can't remember but the Visuddhimagga or its commentary so the Visuddhimagga says one isn't afraid I'm pretty sure that's in the Visuddhimagga but I think it's in the commentary that says why that is what the difference is so sorry, Bhayanyana is something called Bhaya means fear but it can also mean danger so in this case it doesn't mean fear it means knowledge of fearsomeness like when you see a fire burning and bla blazing you think boy if I fell into that fire that would hurt me but you're not afraid of the fire you're just aware of the danger or if you see a poisonous snake you don't have to be afraid of it you just know that that's dangerous so it's a, it's starting to see the danger of of clinging as you watch and you see how you suffer you say wow you know, there's real danger to this I better do something about it um, and anyway the commentary the Visuddhi Manga says Real fear has anger associated with so anyway, I won. <laughs> I was right. I mean, it just seemed strange to think it had nothing to do with aversion. So the commentary to the Visuddhimagga agrees. We objectively concentrate on the breath, bringing awareness back to it once distractions are gone, but when a distracting thought arises, we deal with it by objectively concentrating on the thought until it dissolves. Yes. Using the same strategy, objective concentration, expecting two different results. I see. No, I mean we're not. Um, we're focused. Well, thoughts are different. Thoughts do arise. Um, we're not trying to make things dissolve. They dissolve by themselves, and you do the same with the breath. You know, the breath isn't a thing that exists the rising exists and then it dissolves it's a momentary thing I mean that one's easy because it's come and it's gone um, and then the falling is come and gone but the thing is it's a, it, it repeats and because it repeats it's useful to go back to we're not expecting two different results the same result the rising dissolves the falling dissolves and the rising and then dissolves 
but because it repeats it's an easy it's an easy beginner practice like training wheels in many ways or you know it's just a base for us to come back to because it's reassuring it's always there it's it's simpler than running around trying to find the tiger in the jungle does a does attachment have a quality of heaviness to it? Maybe that's physical you're thinking. Attachment doesn't have heaviness or lightness. Attachment has a pulling or a yearning nature. Wouldn't worry too much about particulars like that. Whatever you experience, try to note it. If it's a feeling of heaviness, then note the feeling of heaviness. If you're clear that this is something you want, in fact, attachment isn't really a thing, but it's the wanting or the liking that you have to know. Can you scratch an itch during formal meditation? Yeah, just be mindful. Rubbing is apparently, well, rubbing is more advised. Definitely better, you just say, wanting to scratch, wanting to scratch, raising, rubbing, rubbing. For the past two months, as soon as I close my eyes to meditate, I instantly feel pressure on my left eyelid. Uh, is it an indicator that I'm doing something wrong? No. No, I mean, there is no indicator that you're doing something wrong. The indicator that you're doing something wrong is the, the uh, five hindrances increase. Uh, you know, even then you have to be careful because it's like this is like nauseous gas that we're letting up so it is going to increase uh, you wouldn't feel so frustrated if you didn't do meditation right but you'll see how you get frustrated about something worried about this say suppose you were worried about this uh, you, you, you're trying to make it change or something so you talk about that kind of progress um, the only progress is you should stop obsessing over it and worrying about it the feeling will come or will go as it pleases it has nothing to do with you it's not listening to you the point is how you react to it can an enlightened person become unenlightened? no Regarding what you said tonight about anxiety, the feelings feelings don't cause anxiety, they just go away on their own. Does this imply that once we feel we have stopped the anxious thoughts, we should just ignore the feelings? Should we concentrate on the feelings until they are actually gone? No, you don't ignore things. Stay with them, and um, after some time, if they don't go away, then you can ignore them. But stay with them for a while. Don't don't ignore things, except if they last for, or they keep coming back, and you well, even if they keep coming back, you know. But if something's there for a long time, after a long time, you can ignore it. What's the true nature of boredom? And these true nature questions. It's a theme. Uh, true nature of boredom again anger it's an aversion boredom is just a wish you were doing something else and uh, aversion towards what you're doing it's just a name for another name for aversion 
often caused by desire. You want to be doing something else, and then you look back at what you're doing, and you got to do it, and there's an anger. Maybe a little bit of uh, laziness as well, or tiredness as well. Okay, and that's all the questions. That's all for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night.